0: Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Ian Miller, a researcher on the project and lecturer in medical history at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource. It aims to map changing experiences of infection and disease for individuals and communities in Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. Uh, and this is uh, the final episode. We, we've gone through a lot of ground on the series. We've gone through cholera in the 19th century and tuberculosis all the way through the therapeutic revolution of the 20th century, polio, thymidine, AIDS. And then for our final episode, we're, we're delighted to have Professor Louise dupi uh, Dean of the Medical School at Ulster University, uh, and also GP. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, could you please introduce yourself briefly and, and maybe explain your, your various roles within the medical profession?
1: Yes, of course, Ian. Um, So, as you say, my name is Louise Dubrat and I am a GP. First and foremost, I'm a GP. It's something I've been doing for a very long time. Um, Prior to coming to Northern Ireland, I worked as a GP looking after homeless people in Southampton for many years. But now I work one day a week um, as a GP at a practice in the city of Derry, Londonderry. And um, this is very much a a deprived inner city practice. The remaining four days a week, I am employed as a professor of medical education at Ulster University. And my job there is to. start the School of Medicine um, to get ready for the entrance of our first medical students, which is something very excited
0: about. That's fascinating. Um, Our podcast series argued overall that infectious disease became much more manageable, particularly since the early 20th century. Um, Obviously, there's exceptions such as polio and AIDS, but generally infection and contagion became less of a problem. Uh, In light of that, was the COVID pandemic of early 2020 much of a shock Mm -hmm. to you?
1: I think that's a really good question, Ian, and, and I, I, I think, embarrassingly, the answer is yes. Um, and I say embarrassing because we'd seen, um, we'd seen kind of precursors in the last few years. So, for example, we'd seen SARS, um, we'd seen MERS, um, and of course, in Africa, we'd seen Ebola. But even though we, uh, you know, as a GP, I had been prepared for SARS. Um, I'd gone through all the fitting of my personal protective equipment, and we had plans in place uh, for our homeless patients about how we would manage them. Um, It never came to anything. It it felt like a fault that they felt like false alarms. And 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 I think Ebola. Although although we watched Ebola unfold, um, it never got. Really to our to our shores, and, and so, whilst we uh, as as clinicians were knew that these things could happen, I think we had developed uh, perhaps a, a sense of complacency um, that perhaps they wouldn't happen to us, and and so the the evolution of the COVID pandemic. Came as a shock, and and I I remember very clearly being actually being in London um, with my colleagues in in the medical school, and we were watching TV footage from uh, from Italy, and one of my colleagues who is a, a consultant in intensive care looked at those images and said, "Gosh, those patients are really sick." Um, it was very obvious to him, and 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 I think the speed with which that um, the pandemic came upon us, um, as well as the severity of of the impact on on people was took us all somewhat by surprise. And
0: um, obviously, COVID um, is caused by a virus, whereas many of the diseases we've looked at on the show are by germs. So, uh, what's the same? What ways do viruses differ? Diseases caused by germs, and why are they often so hard to manage and cure?
1: I think the first, the first thing, and, and please, please forgive me. Um, I'm going to just give a, a little bit of a factual thing here because, and, and, and I, and, and I, I'm doing it because I think it's it's um, a common, um, a common misconception that that the word germ, I suppose, is, as a, as a member of the public might use it, um, could refer to bacteria or viruses, and I think the the diseases that that you've talked about. Tuberculosis, cholera, and so on uh, tend to be bacterial, although not necessarily typical bacteria either, but we won't sort of get into the microbiology of it. But I think that the, the main thing about, about those pathogens, those disease-causing agents, is that they are relatively stable genetically. And so it's relatively easy for immunity to to, to be um, developed whether that's by an individual encountering that pathogen that bug and then becoming immune to it through having dealt with it within the body itself or by um, the development of a vaccine um, and then the rollout of that vaccine to to give immunity it's it's relatively easy get on top of those things either by just having a mass vaccination program or by um, having a sort of manageable level of that condition in the community it's the sort of thing that perhaps you'd have heard um, friends talking about chicken pox parties um, you know where where actually parents are keen to to get their kids all together to all get chicken pox because then they know that they know when they've had it and they can do it when they can look after them and so on. Now, the, the difference with viruses um, are, are that they are often, not always, but often less stable genetically. Um, and and the other bit that's relevant there is it's not just about the internal makeup of the virus, but but the outside It's the virus coat. So, for example, when we when we look at the pictures of of COVID, COVID is a coronavirus. It's got these spikes on the outside, protein spikes, um, and and they give it its distinctive appearance. But it's also those protein spikes, which are what the vaccines um, attack. And so the vaccines kind of recognise those spikes and then enable the body to to learn that those are foreign and they need to be kind of tackled and and eliminated. But but viruses like COVID mutate, and that's part and parcel of normal kind of virus life. Um, But of course, the minute it mutates, you get the variants that we've heard about. And a lot of the time, those aren't terribly significant, um, but sometimes the mutation will be a bit more profound and there'll be a very significant change in what the surface of that virus looks like and then the vaccine doesn't work. And if we take flu as an example, that's the reason why we need a new flu jab every year. It's because the that protein coating to the flu virus changes quite quickly. So flu is constantly mutating. And and so the the surveillance um, mechanisms uh, in in the West, well, actually in the Northern Hemisphere predominantly, look at what happens in the Southern Hemisphere and the way the flu virus will be evolving there. um, And that enables um, a prediction of the best flu vaccine to to use um, for our uh, communities in in our winter time, so so it is a bit of an ongoing challenge, and it's really, as I say, it's so to summarise, I suppose it's it's just all about the the way in which these these organisms, these microorganisms, are constituted genetically and how they how they operate. Uh,
0: the, the coronavirus, for well, the two years or so of the pandemic, it felt like a very long time with lockdown, social distancing restrictions, and and all those problems. Uh, how did you experience working during the pandemic? I know at uh, first we we had quite favourable infection rates compared to at least UK and Ireland, but in 2021, the situation in Northern Ireland seemed to worsen. Uh, so how, how did you experience all of that as a key worker?
1: Well, it, it, it was probably the most challenging work I've ever done I think as a as a GP and and I I, there's been a great deal published about it in in the medical literature in the GP literature but I think uh, from a very very personal perspective there was this there was a total upheaval uh, a total reversal of of how we worked general practice traditionally is is Pretty open access to patients. The doors of the practice are open. Patients obviously have to make appointments to see us, but by and large, we we are very accessible to to our, our patients. And and even for listeners who think, well, it takes me a month to get an appointment with my GP. Normally, it would take an awful lot longer to get an appointment with a hospital. Um, and and we changed we changed from that to to having signs on the doors that said stop don't enter Um, we had uh, literally our door was locked and we would only let people in by prior arrangement and 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 we really didn't physically see people face to face at all Um, our work was done predominantly with telephone consultations video consultations Um, it felt very uncomfortable um, making Um, management decisions for our housebound patients um, without seeing them as often as we normally would. Um, Of course, we still visited people, um, but we did far fewer than than we used to. Um, And I think the other thing that I found particularly difficult was the the frequency with which we were getting information updates. And those were either information uh, about um, the illness itself, uh, and, and there was new learning day on day sometimes, uh, but also information about how we were configuring our services, and and so and, and I think the other thing is actually that um, behind all of that, we we are people, and we have families and we were separated from our families and our loved ones and and I was separated from my grown-up children. I was separated from my elderly parents. Um, and and so we were fearful. you know I think we were fearful for our patients, we were fearful for our families. Um, and honestly I think there were times when when going to work, um, there was a level of of anxiety about what we were facing, and and I certainly remember my first shift in the in our local COVID centre. I was fearful. I really didn't know what I was going to face, and and it was something that we all coped with because we had no choice. Um, but it certainly wasn't easy. There was a real mix of of emotions that that kind of underlay all all of the
0: actual work that we were having to do a lot of our podcast so far is really focused on marginalized and minor communities so i wonder did you get a sense that covid was disproportionately affecting particular communities or groups in, in northern ireland it
1: was disproportionately affecting minority groups whichever way you looked in around the world to be honest with you and and i think northern ireland was no different to that um, so of course, people in um, houses of multiple occupation, people who were in hostels, people who were who who had to go to work in order to to make a living and stay solvent. I think also there was the issues of of social isolation. Um, we saw very significant um, impact on people's mental health um, we saw an increase in in the use of alcohol perhaps both those people who traditionally might have been engaged with addiction services um, and those services then were basically closed uh, so if your coping strategy has traditionally been alcohol or drugs then that's kind of where you're going to go back to um, so yes it was it was People who were poor, people who were lonely, um, and people who, um, who had mental health and addiction problems were certainly disproportionately.
0: Affected midway through the pandemic, uh, the vaccinations were approved and, and began to be rolled out, um, particularly throughout two thousand and twenty-one. I wondered if you had any thoughts on the vaccination program in general, or your experiences of it, on or, or maybe the anti-vaxxers who obviously have um, doubts about vaccination.
1: I, I mean, I think first and foremost, I, I think the vaccination program has been phenomenal. I, I think as a as a triumph of of. Um, science uh, and of and also actually of, of problem solving and and nimble, high quality decision making. Um, I, I think that the development of vaccines and then the the management of the rollout has has been absolutely astonishing. I think from a um, from a personal perspective, I, I kind of watched this with with in awe. And 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 I have to say, I think when I first saw it emerging, I, I thought, "Gosh, how can all of the appropriate safety um, kind of ac- activities been undertaken? How how can we be really really confident that that the governance around the the the, the licensing of these vaccines be appropriate?" But but I, I as I watched what was going on, I felt confident that those things were were happening and and so on a personal level I felt very confident in in having the vaccine myself for example so I had my first dose of vaccine just before Christmas the the bit the other bit which was amazing about the vaccination program was actually delivering vaccines and and I I I, um we, we as a practice, we were rolling out the vaccine program to our very elderly patients. And, and actually, the, the privilege of being able to get those elderly people through our doors um, and vaccinate them was absolutely incredible. And, and what amazed me was that these were people who perhaps historically had been very Um, reluctant to have, for example, a flu jab. And yet, I think they had seen the impact of COVID on their communities and their families. And actually, they'd also experienced its impact on themselves in in a way that flu never touched them. Um, And families were bringing them in. Um, So so actually, I I felt very privileged to to be able to deliver part of the vaccination programme and I've also been very impressed with um, the way in which the vaccinations have been embraced by our younger um, our younger people. Um, Anti-vaxxers. I think. I guess we 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 have to recognise that that individuals are of course entitled to um, to their views on all sorts of all sorts of um, issues, and and of course there isn't necessarily always one version of the truth I mean as as historians of course you you will know probably far far better than me that that um, truth um, it, it can be very subjective and and but I but I do think that the the weight of evidence from around the world about what Covid does to people um, and and the number of deaths, the the extent to which COVID has impacted on healthcare systems cannot be underestimated. And and I I actually just feel very sad that um, that the anti-vax movement has, has had so much airtime and, and I guess that's because we perhaps because we live in this this era where information circulation is so easy. Um, and, and I think it's also quite hard sometimes for people to to sift out um, high quality evidence from um, information that perhaps is more hearsay and based on on um, much less rigorous evidence. So we can't wish them we can't wish people away. Um, we have to respect their voices, we have to respect their views but but i I just think it it's unfortunate that it's become such a prominent
0: narrative. Thank you. so is there anything you, you think worked particularly well in Northern Ireland throughout the pandemic? Potential room for improvements or things that could have been handled better.
1: I think the things that went well um actually, I think the fact that we're a relatively small community here helped us. I think the sense of family helped us. Um, It meant that um, when my colleagues were um, reaching out in in the media to young people and and, and kind of inc- sort of asking young people to think about their parents and their grandparents um, in, 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 in therefore moderating their behavior I think that hit home in a way that it maybe wouldn't have done where there were more extended families perhaps elsewhere in the in, in the United Kingdom and and I think one of the other things that went very well, uh, again, probably because we're a relatively small um, healthcare system here, was for example the establishment of COVID centres um, throughout throughout the, the north, and and that enabled us as GPs to um, establish very safe spaces where we had well-trained nurses and and GPs. In a location to see and assess patients. So, so those things I, I thought particularly worked work particularly well. I think that um, we were no different to the rest of the United Kingdom, with a couple of things that could have been better. Um, and I, I guess I would highlight um, the the management of of discharge of patients to care homes and the number of um, cases of COVID and the number of deaths in, in care homes for the elderly. I think that was very, very sad. Um, and I think the other thing that we all struggled with was the was access to adequate PPE. they would probably be my main headline things.
0: This is a, the very final question of the podcast, so I thought it might be appropriate to, to think and look towards the future. So, could you tell us more about Ulster University's new medical school, and perhaps how COVID may have changed all your vision and that? Well, the, the the school of medicine
1: um, and 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 beginning to train doctors is something that's been brewing, for want of a better term. For well, I've been here for three years now, and and it was it was interesting because I think when when COVID struck, um, I was very conscious that those involved with decision making um, at a political level were going to be very preoccupied with managing the pandemic and uh, therefore would not want to be thinking about about whether or not a medical school should be be established. But actually, as the pandemic progressed, I began to think that actually there was no time that that would be a better time to, to commit to training more doctors than a time where doctors were so obvious um so obviously vital in in the response to to the pandemic um so so in some ways i suppose it it, it was i don't try to pick the right word to use actually um but but i think it, it was something good that could come out of something so awful in terms of my my vision for the school, my, my my vision for the school has always been that it's about training community-focused, globally ambitious doctors who are academically capable change agents. Um, and that hasn't changed. Uh, I, I look back at that vision regularly, frequently. Um, and actually, I think one of the things that we have seen is the need for health services to work in a multidisciplinary way, for there to be considerable interdisciplinary cooperation, but actually also to be nimble. I used that word earlier, but to be nimble, to be able to take on new challenges and effect. Change, so so my vision for the school hasn't changed at all, but just to uh, to outline very quickly what it will be, um, we will be running a graduate entry degree program. So that means that um, it's uh, we we train our doctors over four years rather than five. Um, they come in with a prior degree, and that degree could be in a biomedical science subject, but it could equally be history or music, or geography. Um, We very much welcome the diversity of individuals who we recruit in that way, recognizing that each of them brings a a particular perspective to to the holistic care of patients. Um, So we take our first students on the 23rd of August, 2021 and they will graduate as doctors in June of 2025, um, and they will learn in general practice, they will learn in hospitals, and of course they'll learn on campus. I could probably take an hour telling you all about it, but that's perhaps the best succinct overview of, of what we're, of the threshold on, on which we're standing.
0: Louise, thank you so much. That was a fascinating interview and, and such a fitting end to, to our podcast series, which, which I hope all our listeners have enjoyed listening to. Um, well, thank you very much, Louise, for joining us today.
1: You're very welcome. It's been
0: a, a, an absolute privilege. Thank you for inviting me, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information, and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.